Morning, church. You may be seated. Welcome to Southside. Thank you, Pastor Michael. We are going to address from the book of Ecclesiastes an important question. Why does life sometimes seem to be unfair? When I think about that, I think about the fact that every one of us has a story. And sometimes we come into church and uh, we look at each other and say, Hey, how you doing? All that kind of stuff. And that's fine. That's great. But underneath that are stories, very human stories, stories from the heart. And each of us can relate to that question, why is life so unfair? Uh, this is Greg and Beige Hahn. Can you say hi to the Hans this morning? Good, good. We have been thinking about this for several weeks, and I've asked you to come to, to share with us a bit of your story, uh, your journey, and not that your story is that much different, from any of ours, the circumstances may be different, but the questions that we all ask are the same. So, welcome to Southside this morning. I'll stay up here just as kind of a security blanket for the two of you, and so Greg doesn't ramble, okay? <laughs> just trying to protect my flock, that's all. Okay? <laughs> all right, so Greg, you, you may feel free to share that right there if, you, if you'd like. Good. So... Step forward so you're in the light, and who's going first? This is well rehearsed, I can see. Good. I'm going to go first? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. How much do you want me to share? A little bit at a time? Whatever you like. I think the first thing that comes to my heart is uh, prior to even my birth, um, my dad's father was a an alcoholic and died when my dad was a teenager. So being raised by him, uh, my dad was a hothead. Uh, his discipline was physically and verbally abusive. Um, teaching moments didn't really exist. It was just right to punishment. Um, being pushed and shoved and hit instead of showing me and correcting uh, my mistakes. This leading me to lie about things and giving myself a, a 50-50 chance uh, when I did things wrong. An upbringing of no fatherly support or recognition. Uh, I mean, I remember my mom coming to baseball games and, and football games. Uh, what an unfair disadvantage to succeed. I needed a man to push me and drive me with motivation. It led me to uh, an adolescence of drinking and poor choices. Uh, I began to care um, about very much. I'm just going to start with a little history um, of the things that I experienced while I was growing up. I was molested by a family member when I was six years old. I never told anyone because of the fear and shame. I believed I was at fault, and the shame kept me from ever talking about it to anyone I didn't think anyone would understand. My parents were very traditional in their culture and held fast to it. I could not talk to them about my issues at school or anywhere because they would not understand how I felt. They didn't speak English or understand the world I lived in. I was not supposed to conform to the majority culture. 
I was bullied at school and didn't have friends. I was hit, laughed at, and rejected. I don't recall having many friends. I picked friends that were not very nice to me. This continued all through high school. I chose friends who appeared well-liked so I could fit in. They were mean and backstabbing friends who talked about me and put me down. I often wondered what was wrong with me that nobody liked me. After completing a two-year college with my associates, I got the opportunity to move away to go to a university. I thought I was free at last, to live how I wanted and be a part of the world I lived in. So I thought, anyway, I met a man and I fell in love. When my family learned of his race, I was disowned for 20 years. I was on my own. This man showed me some attention, and I was in all the way. Little did I know what I had gotten into. I didn't care. I was just so happy that someone said they loved me. I dropped out of the university I was attending after just one semester to be with this guy. He did not like the fact that school took away so much time away from him. He later did not think I made enough money for him, so manipulated me into working on the streets for him. He took all my money and told me how I should live. I lived this way for several years until I was pregnant with our oldest. He did not want the baby do baby, so told me to get an abortion or else. I remember going to the clinic for consultation and sitting in the waiting room all by myself. I distinctly remember sitting there, sick as it can be because of hyperemesis. I was dehydrated, hungry, and alone. I saw a couple of ladies who worked at the clinic leaving together for lunch. I wished for a second that I had a friend who I could go have lunch with. I was alone. This man I thought I loved later changed his mind about getting an abortion. He called me the morning of the appointment to terminate the baby. He said it was time for him to have a boy, so keep it. He was with someone else at the time, and I could hear her in the background laughing. I was just happy I was keeping my son. He's 28 years old now. So I found importance in drinking and behaving wild and erratic. Like it didn't matter, I found it hard to keep friends and I was shy and timid. I never had a man to stand up for me. So I didn't know how it was to stand up for myself. Bad patterns of self-destruction were pretty much my life. Why did I keep putting myself in these situations? So this son that Beach had uh, became my stepson. I met him when he was three. Like Beach said, he's 28 now. Um, Ray's father, his biological father, was forceful and bullied him. Uh, I was encouraged to teach him the opposite of what I knew. But the things my dad did that I said I would never do or become... I became. Not to the same extent, just doing it tore me up. We became to have more bonding relationship, Ray and I. I became dad to him. Things got better, our relationship grew. And then about the age of 14, his biological father suddenly, just suddenly came back into the picture and said that he wanted to see his son. So we... Sent him to California, 
and uh, kind of mocked him for his behavior and the way he was acting, which I thought he was a good, solid young man. But So when he came back from the visit, his dad said he can only have one dad. So he uh, stopped calling me dad, which is pretty crazy, devastating. But he said that he would never let his son call another person uh, dad. So I'm jumping right to Drew now. Drew was born on 9-11. I remember seeing him for the first time and thinking how round his head was due to a C-section. He was perfect, and I couldn't wait to hold him after recovery. When I first held him, he was so small and cold. The nurses kept telling me to hold him more snugly and against my stomach to help him maintain his heat. He wasn't able to latch on to eat, so we tried bottles, and he could barely drink an ounce without getting really sweaty and heart rate would go up. Nurses seemed concerned, but were not saying anything to us about his health. We were pretty oblivious. Greg and I were both so happy we had a little boy, and he was... Greg was running around passing out donuts and taking pictures, and this, this was just absolutely amazing before we found anything was wrong. How awesome to have a boy to raise. to do things with, to teach him the things that I know. So I have, we have some other friends that have had children that are like, actually I think one, people have just a son that's a couple days apart from Drew's age. He's also 12. We have another friend that's just a couple months apart. And those kids are playing football or doing activities. So not to be able to have an opportunity to teach those things to Drew. And actually this year, as a sixth grader, he would be in my youth group, but he's not. It's also a challenge to see the time that he was born and struggling that Lorraine was not allowed some of the bonding time that should have been for her. First, the news of the Downs came. I was, in, I was at home three days after Drew was born, laying in bed, and was subconsciously kind of waiting for the phone to ring. We knew we were doing some tests. There was some concern that there were some abnormalities, and um, the phone call came Friday morning, and I jumped up to answer the phone. And it was a doctor, and we, mm-hmm. we for sure just thought it was, um, that they were just going to rule out any issues. It was, you know, too many features on Drew that looked too much like ours, and it just was not clear until the test came in and the doctor confirmed that Drew had Down's syndrome. And I remember hanging up on him, crying, and calling Greg, and he came home. And then we both cried, and um, that's, that's kind of when it all began. That It didn't end there. Once we found out about the Down's, 
We then found out he had some heart issues. Um, we saw specialist after specialist, and they thought the holes would heal over time. Um, the holes did not heal. He was in constant heart failure. Um, at about three months, they decided he needed to get his um, heart surgery, and that's, that's when he stopped looking blue all the time and um, looked like a healthy baby, still, still with a lot of issues, but now he, he wasn't in heart failure all the time, and he was starting to eat. He was starting to gain weight. At about a year old, um, Drew started waking up with fevers and rashes that would last weeks and weeks and weeks, and no one could really figure out what was going on with him. And after numerous trips and tests, you name it, we went through every battery of tests out there. And um, I would stay at the hospital with him. We would be there for weeks at a time. And, and you know, I think one of the persons that forgets to be mentioned is, is our daughter. She really did... She was six years old when Drew was born, and all of a sudden I was gone. I was at the hospital all the time. And Greg was dealing with the whole issue in his own way. So I think neither one of us were emotionally available for him, for her. And um, this really impacted her. It still does. But we're we're working through it. Um, So Drew got open-heart surgery at three months. He was in constant heart failure, like I mentioned. Um... I guess in conclusion to this whole testimony, life changed for me in ways I can't even explain. I could no longer work. I was at home full-time with Drew and became very lonely. I had friends and church family come around the first several months, and that was awesome, but then it all dies down. Drew took up all my time and energy. Our child, Lorraine, was feeling very abandoned and neglected, and... um, and again, it didn't stop there. We, we stopped all the visits to the hospital. Um, even now, we still go once or twice a month, three times a month. Monday, I take him in for eight cortisone injections in all his joints because he's not moving. This is our constant life. This is every day for us. So I guess we don't realize how hard it is. We just do it. It's, it's been like this for 12 years. But then when we were asked to come and talk about it, wow, we, we've... It's been a terrible place. We've been in a really yucky place that we don't like to be in. Like Miko said, I'd rather counsel than talk about my stuff. But okay, boy, isn't this fun? Oftentimes, when we see people, we don't know what's going on. Everyone has a story. Only Jesus is sufficient for our stories. And yet if we are truly family, this is the kind of rawness that my heart cries out for. Because your story is not so different from theirs. It just has different circumstances. And we all need Jesus desperately. Don't we? There's a whole bunch that we haven't filled in here because the story hasn't yet been written. They are trusting Jesus. We are trusting Jesus together. And they've got a precious daughter and son here. Greg, why don't you just go, uh, go to Drew and just show him off a little bit, would you? You're proud of your son, I know that. 
Lorraine, why don't you come on up too? We just want to pray for you together. So this is their story. This is their song, praising their Savior all the day long. Church, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we come to you really with not a whole lot of answers to our questions. And yet I am grateful that this story has not yet reached its conclusion. And in the day-to-day process of living life and balancing all that's necessary, we ask that your peace fill this home. We ask that your hope meet the loneliness and isolation that this family will know that they are loved and I'm grateful for their honesty before us this morning they have said things from this platform that few people in their lives have ever heard before and I'm grateful for that kind of transparency Jesus because that's where we meet you Lord we declare that life seems to be unfair And yet we hope only in you. I ask your blessing upon this family. I ask, Lord, that you will continue to sustain Drew. We don't know if he's got a day to live or a week to live or a month to live or uh, uh, 10 years to live. He's already outlived what doctors said would be his life expectancy. And so day by day, he's a gift, and yet so much work goes into this. And, Lord, I pray for this family emotionally that you will meet them in the deepest places of their heart. They thank you for Drew. They thank you for Lorraine. And Lord, I'm asking that we also, as a part of their family, will come alongside with support and encouragement, thanking you for these lives, these precious lives that you have given to, to Greg and to Beesh. Lord, sustain them. And I pray that today would be one of encouragement and hope. Yeah. And that, Lord, you would receive the honor and glory in all things and in all ways. For we believe you together, even in our sorrow, even in our despair. You are our hope. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And the congregation agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hans. God bless you. Thanks. So, why is life so unfair the question before us this morning and honestly um, that's a really difficult question we're not going to answer in the next 30 minutes so I don't know what your expectations are but uh, it's not going to happen uh, we've got some sermon notes if you'd like to follow along if you're newer to Southside did not pick those up uh, I'd like to just uh, slip your hand up and our ushers will get you those sermon notes so if you'd like to follow along that way good got several hands around if you guys could just uh, make sure keep your hands up nice and tall there we go so why do bad things happen to good people How would you answer that question? It is, in fact, a very, very difficult question to wrestle with. There are aches and pains of daily life that can become almost too much to bear. The weight of that becomes uh, crushing. Why were the 17 teens and adults killed by a 19-year-old in the Florida school? Why? 
Why does the young mother of small children come down with life-threatening cancer? Why does a man who has worked diligently and faithfully all of his life suddenly find out that his life savings are wiped out? He's got nothing at the end. Why is life like this? Why is this the way things are? And you know exactly what I'm dealing with. If we take a moment and open our hearts to the Lord, if you are dealing with grief, If you have lost someone to death or disability, if you have failed in business matters or family matters, if you have failed in friendship or morals, if you are dealing with the pain of a broken down marriage or a busted up relationship, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about if it seems like all your hard work is gone for nothing. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you find yourself... Right here, right now, somewhere you never thought you would be. You never imagined it would come to this. You're in the right place. You're in the right place. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you feel like a failure as a parent or a spouse, or it seems like lately life has been one long losing streak, you know what I'm talking about. So why is my life so unfair? And we have a bunch of uh, very wise and astute people in this congregation. So why don't you just turn to your neighbor just for a moment, ask them that question. Go ahead, just ask, why is life so unfair? Go ahead. Lots of people ask those kinds of questions. Solomon was asking those kinds of questions. Also, another renowned theologian asked that same question. His name was Charlie Brown. He was wondering about the deeper things of life, and Lucy came to him and asked him, Life is a mystery, Charlie Brown. Do you know the answer? And Charlie Brown said, Be kind, don't smoke, be prompt, eat sensibly, avoid cavity, smile a lot, mark your ballot, carefully avoid too much sun, send overseas packages early, love all creatures above and below, ensure your belongings, and try to keep the ball low. Before he could get out yet one more cliche, Lucy interrupted him, said, Charlie Brown, hold real still because I'm about to hit you with a very sharp blow to your nose. Sometimes when we ask these kinds of questions, people offer up very simplistic answers to these difficult questions. Sometimes answers are simple. Sometimes answers are not so simple. But I found the older I get, sometimes there is no answer at all. There is no answer at all this side of eternity. And that's what faith is all about. Believing that God does know the beginning from the end. And I just must be faithful in this moment. I don't have to have all the answers. Now, Solomon was a very wise man who lived about 30 centuries ago. He searched for answers to life's difficult questions, just like you and I search for answers to life's difficult questions. He hunted for happiness. He searched for significance. And he pondered the point, what is life all about? This madness, this chaos that we're going through. And over the past months, we've looked at some very important questions like, why does my wife life see? Oof, I better get that one right. Not my wife, my life. Why, why does my life seem so pointless? <laughs> Whew, I'm glad I corrected that one. 
where am I going to find happiness? And why am I so lonely that we examine last questions like that? Today, the issue is fairness. Why does life oftentimes seem to be so unfair? So if you've got your Bibles, let's dig in. Mighty King Solomon was becoming really frustrated by all of this. And so he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes for you and for me so that we might have an understanding of life from a different perspective. So many questions, so few answers. And he, as he looked at life from both sides now, he found out that things just aren't fair. Let's examine briefly some of the things that Solomon discovered. He considered the world doesn't play fair. Do you agree with that? The world doesn't play fair. Here's what, this is just one verse, by the way. This is a long, long verse. Just one. I observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Life doesn't seem fair when we're looking at it from the outside in. Huh. It's all decided by fate anyway, right? Got to be in the right place at the right time. Some get a lucky break, some don't. You having a good karma day? Not so good karma day. What's going on? Huh. Then he's talking about this. (coughs) Excuse me. Ashes to ashes. And we find this in Ecclesiastes 3. Excuse me. (coughs) There we go. People and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. Now, remember, Solomon's used that word meaningless, which means vapor or smoke, some 25 times in the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is one of his theme songs. This is all meaningless. Makes no sense at all. And so he continues. Both go to the same place. They came from dust and they returned to dust. Huh. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that positive? Isn't that uplifting? We're no better off than the animals. You're nothing but a walking piece of dust that's going back to dust. That's uplifting. He goes on in 221. For though I do my work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, I must leave everything I gain to people who haven't worked to earn it. This is not only foolish, but highly unfair. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Huh? So Solomon's got the same questions. This doesn't seem real fair. Then he considers this. The bad guys win. Ever thought about that? Way too often the bad guys win. Good guys don't win, the bad guys win. So here's what he says in 4.1. I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors were, have great power and their victims are helpless. He goes on to say, in this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked and wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. It's so meaningless. So Solomon is just, you can sense his frustration with all this. And so he continues, I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. But most fortunate of all, those have not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that's done under the sun. So it's better off not to be born. Because when you're born, you're put into an unfair world. Would you agree with that? I think we all would. Yeah, life isn't really fair. Okay, how about this? Number four, everybody's in it for themselves. 
Boy, doesn't this read like headlines. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. (laughs) Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Wow, everybody's in it for themselves. This just doesn't seem fair. The small guy's the one that gets squashed, right? Now, understand I'm not the answer man. I am not the answer man. Solomon's questions are my questions too. As I look around at our world and life today, these are the same questions that I'm asking. They're the same questions that the Hans have asked. This just doesn't seem fair in our life. Why? Why me? Why now? What are we supposed to do? Well, as Solomon raises the question, we're going to look at another piece of wisdom literature. And again, wisdom literature consists of five books in the Bible. I hope somebody remembers what the five books are. What are the five books of wisdom literature found in the Bible? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Very good. We got the five. Okay, good. Those five books are called the wisdom literature in Scripture, right? So we're going to go and find some wisdom in another piece of wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is one of them. So is the book of Psalms. Now, who wrote the book of Psalms? Or who wrote the Psalms? Jesus, I like that answer. Thank you. It is always the right answer. Absolutely. Who wrote the Psalms? Okay, how many of you think David wrote at least some of them? You're right. Very good. Okay. Did you know that there are seven different known authors of the Psalms and that there are 49 Psalms that are anonymous? Huh. We're looking at Psalm 73 to give you some survival tips in an unfair world. If you've got your sermon notes, I'd like to continue to follow along. This is a, a Psalm of Asaph. Now, the word psalm means a song of praise. We were just singing songs of praise. A psalm is a song of praise. This one is written by Asaph. Now, Asaph was a Levite, one of David's finest musicians and a choir director. Today, he would be a worship leader. And understand, when we talk about our worship teams, I want to make sure that people who are representing Jesus on this platform are walking their talk. Because I believe that the choir director, the worship leader, should be one. And those who are up here representing an intimacy with Jesus, not perfect people. I can attest to that because I know Pastor Michael. But the point being, the, the point being, their feet are pointed toward Jesus and his kingdom and they love him. Just like me. And I just want our feet pointed in the right direction. That's all. That's all. So when we worship here at Southside, I can assure you that we are shepherding the flock, and that includes our worship teams. These are people who are in love with Jesus and want to express that with the abilities and gifts that God has given that makes sense to you. So this is written by Asaph, a choir director, the worship leader. Very profound thoughts in Psalm 73. It's a story of his search to understand why life can seem so unfair. Now, verse 1 starts... 
and states that God is good to the pure in heart, to the pure in heart. Six times here, Asaph uses the word heart in Psalm 73. Now, it's fascinating to me that the Thai language has one, over 100 words that describe the word heart. You know how many English has? A couple. That's why I love Thai, because the expression in their language can cover a multitude of understanding of where a person really is. We say heart, and we've got a couple of categories that we shove them into. Here's what Robert Johnson wrote in The Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. Of all the Western languages, English may be the most lacking when it comes to feeling. We can't express ourselves because we don't even have words to do it. In our particular language, I find that fascinating. But I found that the answers to life's difficult questions are not matters of the head. They are matters of the heart. And if you're trying to figure out the way your life is going by your head, you're going to get a headache. And you're going to be in a constant headache because life won't make sense. Life doesn't make sense oftentimes. We don't know why this happened. What's the purpose behind this? Things are happening in our lives we can't control. And we wonder, what is the point to all of this? If we try to figure this out logically, we cannot because these are matters of the heart. And where is our heart? If it rests in the hands of God, we're in a good place. If not, we're left with a big headache. Make sense? Okay, so six times he uses that word heart to understand this whole issue that we're talking about. What is life like in an unfair world? So let's look at four survival tips. I'll leave you with these for living in an unfair world. If we agree the world is unfair for the most part, let's look at what our response might be. Number one, beware, don't compare. Beware, don't compare. Here's what Asaph said. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. So he's looking around. He's saying, ha, it seems like the bad guys have it really good and the good guys don't have it so good. And he begins to envy them. This is a word of the heart, a word that comes from the heart. And we can fall into this trap. It's not healthy to do the have, have not thing. They have that, I don't have that. Or if I only had blank. If I only had blank. You ever played that game? Play that game in our head? If I only had his wife, if I only had her job, if I only had their family, if I only lived in their house and their neighborhood, if I only had their health, if I only had their bank account, and we start comparing ourselves with ourselves, which Paul says in Corinthians is stupid to do. Okay, So, we are tempted to make the subtle but dangerous change from I want something to I need something. And in America, we're crossing that line ever more frequently from I want something to I need something. I can't live without this. Ooh, ooh. When this happens, we're really saying, God, you're not enough. God, you're not enough. That's the temptation we're falling into. God is not enough. And yet we come into church and we sing on Sundays. Your grace is enough. Yeah. The cross, the cross, it's enough. Christ is enough for me. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is enough. Enough until we get outside the doors and all of a sudden he's not enough. And we're tempted then to say, ah, Maybe, God, you're not enough. Maybe you're not enough. Maybe I mean to make something happen. Because I like what they have, and I want that too. 
So Asaph is in this position. He's saying, beware, don't compare. Once we do that, we're in trouble. Secondly, he says, pity parties mess up our mind. Pity parties mess up our mind. Oh, look at, look at this. Life is not fair. I'm just going to have a major old pity party. Invite all my friends to it. Okay, here we go. And he says, all through their life, their road is smooth. They grow sleek and fat. These fat cats have everything their hearts could wish for. My, oh my, this isn't Kansas, is it, Dorothy? You're in a whole different place now. Where are we? Where are we? The guys in the white hats don't always win. Literally in Hebrew, this says their bodies are plump. Yay, plump bodies. Yay. But fat is a nasty word in our day. It's a nasty word. So, you know what? I tried fat-free Oreo cookies. They tasted like fat-free Oreo cookies. So I'm back to the original ones. At least I'll die happy. See, in the Old Testament, fat was a sign of prosperity. In other cultures in our world, fat is still a sign of prosperity. Fat was where it was at. Woo, woo. Some of you pray for that day to return. Lord, bring the day back when fat is where it's at. It's a new day, not a new diet. Oh, Lord, help me. A day when God says, go to Pizza Ranch and have all that you want. Take as many plates as you want. Go back again and again. But life isn't fair, is it? Life isn't fair. Our soul can become really lean when life overwhelms us by its circumstances. The injustice and unfairness rob us of the joy and the journey, these moments when we connect with God in intimacy. And they're all kind of blurry now because it's just not fair. We wonder, what's the use in trying to do the right thing? You ever felt like that? I'm looking around and seeing, man, why is uh, that person seems to be blessed and they don't even love Jesus? What's going on here? Asaph had the same thing going on. 73, 13, and 14. What's the use in trying to do the right thing? He said, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. I'm looking around at all the other people. They got no problems, but look at me. I'm a wreck and I'm your worship leader, God. Whoa, the bad guys are the good guys. And the horrible things happen to good people. And the good die young and the rich get richer and the poor, well, you know, what happens to them? Can I be very open with you? Some of life's difficult questions are too big for anyone to answer except God. They're too big for anyone to answer except God. And when Hans stood here, my heart just broke, right? And I've stood over Jenny Carpenter dying and Lori Gross dying, young mothers drawing their last breaths, both of them. I, I, I was able to be there in those last moments. And, and why this just doesn't seem fair. I've stood over the caskets of little children and I've wept. In my own life, things have happened and in our family, things have happened which I have had little control and little understanding. My heart has cried out, why me, God? I don't know if I can handle this. Why now? Why this? It just seems so unfair. (sighs) But my perspective is often so limited if I choose to look at those things under the sun. That's the phrase Solomon's been using. You recall what that means? If he says this is what happens under the sun, that's a life limited to the periphery of what I can see and feel and experience empirically. This is all there is to life. What's here right now. This is it. 
This is it. That's life under the sun as we've looked at Solomon's perspective. But God tells me, look beyond that. Look at my perspective. He doesn't live life under the sun. There is life beyond this life, and it's happening right now, and his abundance is what he wants for us right now. Right now. And in the midst of when life doesn't seem fair, he wants to come crashing in with all of his riches and all of his goodness and all of his grace smashing into these circumstances. And so... Back to Asaph. I try to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. So wrestle on, wrestle on. Nothing wrong with wrestling with those kinds of questions. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood. This is absolutely key. God will have the last word. In the end, God wins. Do you believe that? I believe that God absolutely wins in the end. We can be certain life won't always be fair. It will not be fair. Payment. And payday won't always happen on the final Friday of the month. But as I understand scripture, God's word will be final. He will have the last word. This means that if I trust in God, I too am an overcomer and a winner. If God wins and I'm in God, what does that make me? Who are you? You're a winner? Tell your neighbor that. You're a winner in Christ. Now we got to start living like we're winners and not whiners, right? Right? Because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Number three, get an attitude adjustment. Get an attitude adjustment. Come on, John, get an attitude adjustment. Then I realized that my heart was bitter because I'm looking at all this stuff and it makes no sense. The, the good guys are losing, the bad guys are winning. And I was all torn up inside, says the worship leader. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Ugh. God, how do you put up with me? Now, while circumstances are often beyond our control, God has given us this incredible opportunity and ability to choose our attitude. Do you believe that? We can't control these circumstances, but we can our attitude. What happens to us is not nearly as important as what happens in us because life's going to happen. Life's going to happen to us. And it's happening to you right now. And if we went around this room, the Han story would be your story. In some aspect of your life, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. But what ha- what's really important is what happens in us, because that I have the ability to control. And that's why Scripture says, have the same attitude in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. I have the ability to choose my attitude. Now, what happens to me in this unfair world has absolutely no power over the choice, the opportunity that I have concerning my own attitude. That's on me. The person responsible for my bitterness, my anger, my jealousy, my unforgiving heart, my selfishness, it's me. It's me because I've chosen that. It's me. The circumstance didn't force me to have that attitude. I chose to have that attitude. Now, a big grown-up person is going to say, ah, I have a choice in this. I don't care how unfair it seems. I have a choice. I have a choice to trust Jesus, to give me the attitude that will glorify him, or I can have my own pity party. Hmm. Life can be unfair. No, no, no. Life will be unfair. I guarantee it. Only with God's perspective can we change the outlook that we leave here with. We can change. It's an amazing transformation. For some, it's instantaneous. 
For some, you may have experienced it this very morning. That incredible transformation that happens when you're getting ready for church and everybody in the house is going, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're late and you're busting it to get here. And then you put magically your hand on the church door. And then it's like, hi, hi, hey, hoo-hoo, ooh. Oh, those miracle transformations. <laughs> Lastly, we got to give God our heart and our hand. Life will be unfair. Life will throw us curves. We'll strike out from time to time. Our strength will fail. Our hope will run dry. Our questions won't have answers. What are we going to do when life gets down and dirty and this whole unfairness thing just kind of overwhelms us? (coughs) Excuse me. The author of this passage made a choice. It's found in verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Here is the decisive moment. It's found in that little word till. The little word till. Searching turns into transformation by action. You see, he wanted the presence of God. Here's the worship leader saying, God, I want your presence. So he enters into the sanctuary of God. In other words, I'm going to go to God with this. I'm going to go to God with this. Nothing made sense till I took it. To the Lord is all oppressive to me till I enter the presence of God. Then things started to make some sense. I have to get back into intimacy with Jesus because I guarantee if I'm whining about life being unfair, I'm out of fellowship with Jesus. Hmm. It's on me to move toward God. I must draw near to him and he will draw near to me. It's on me to make the move, to open my heart, to surrender my heart to his will and his plan and even the circumstances that I'm facing. Will we enter into his presence to find his peace? That's what we'll find when we enter into his presence, his peace that transcends all of our understanding, all of our circumstances will guard our heart and mind in that moment till I do this. It will all seem oppressive, and I'll try to figure it all out. But once I bend my knee and come into the presence of God, wow, that's where transformation takes place. And then I look at verse 23. I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You hold my right. Isn't that incredible imagery? I still belong to you. You hold my right hand, Asaph said. You hold my right hand. Man, oh, man. Let me roll the clock back to uh, 1972. Yeah, it's a long time ago. There was that young lady there. And I was really, really not accustomed to girls. uh, But I wanted to hold her hand. Oh, mine, I still remember the sweat. You just kind of nudge over, and she took my hand, and it was electric. (laughs) (laughs) She took my hand, and now I take our hand, our 60-year-old hands, and they, they look a whole lot different. But I guarantee you there's still something electric there. There's just something about the imagery of holding someone's hand, isn't there? It 
So Jesus says to Peter, come out on the water. Get out of the boat, come to the water. And I remind us again, Jesus is not in the boat where it's safe. Jesus is in the wind and the waves. Come out, Peter. Peter comes out, doesn't he? And then what happens to him? He looks at the wind and the waves and he starts to sink. Jesus immediately reached down and grabbed his hand. You have so little faith, he said. Why do you doubt me, Peter? And he reached down and he grabbed his hand. He said, come on. Come on. And so what I'm saying is this. The Lord is extending his hand to every one of us. He's saying, just take my hand. And when you take my hand, you're going to feel something electric. And life's going to make a whole lot more sense if you just take my hand. Just take my hand. Don't try to figure it all out. Would you just take my hand? Can we take his hand and let him be the answer? Let him be the answer to the question, why is life so unfair? Would you take his hand and watch what he can do? Let's pray together, church. Father, we need your help here. There's some stuff in this room that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. The problems are too complex. The situation's too pressing. And so we come to you, our healer, our advocate, our friend, our savior, believing that the answers to these questions are found in you. And Lord, thank you that we can belong to you by giving to you our hearts, our lives. And if there be those here that have not yet made that decision by faith to say to Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you my heart because you gave your heart for me on the cross. And I have not made a whole lot of sense out of life. But Jesus, I'd like you now to be my leader and my Lord. Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Fill me. Change my life, oh God. And for those of us that say, I still belong to you, Lord. I still belong to you. There are moments, there are moments, many moments, when we need to just lift our hand and and to say, Jesus, I'm kind of sinking here. Would you grab my hand? Because I need you right now. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to know I'm not looking out either, but I'm lifting my hand. If that's you this morning, would you just lift your hand, physically lift your hand now and say to the Lord by that gesture, God, I'm taking your hand. Take my hand, Jesus. I need you now. I need you, Lord. Hold my hand. Hold my hand, Lord. 
hold my hand and remind me it's going to be okay. Remind me, Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can reach out to you. And you're always there to grab our hand. You're always there. You'll never turn your back on us. And in these moments, we declare you are good. And Father, I pray that you would unleash in this place your peace and your joy. That even though life can be messy, you are greater. And your love for us will never run out. It will never fail us. And so take our hand now. And collectively as a church, would you take our hand, Jesus? We want to be more like you. We want to follow you. We want to do your will. We want our home and our families to be filled with the presence and fragrance of Jesus. And so, God, would you take our hand? Would you take our hand and bring glory and honor to yourself even when life seems unfair? We're going to trust you to do that because we ask you for it in the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, we pray, and together all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <coughs> Wrestle on, my friends. Wrestle on. As you exit uh, this morning, we're going to ask that uh, uh, the ushers uh, be prepared. And if you uh, would like to give, there is no obligation, but it's an act of our worship. As you exit, the ushers will be there with their plates ready to go to receive our gifts because God has given us so much. How could we leave but giving him our very best? And also, uh, let's stand together, shall we? As you uh, prepare to give or to place those blue cards in the plate that you filled out, that would be the appropriate time to do that. Kingdom lost a good man this week, Billy Graham. Uh, Sydney and I had the privilege of uh, going to the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. We've been a part of the crusade in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, way back in the day. Uh, great respect for that man. Uh, did you know that Billy Graham's first job was in an Alliance Church in Florida? He called the Christian Missionary Alliance the best secret in evangelical Christianity. Always very, very close ties with the CNMA. I've appreciated Dr. Graham, his influence. How many of your lives were influenced by Billy Graham at some point? Would you just raise your hand? Look at that. Look at that. That is amazing to me, the influence that he had. And you know the legacy that that man would want us to live out? Go influence someone for Jesus. We may not be a crusade evangelist, but your light is shining. Can we go out from this place because he's influenced you? And to take our place in influencing others for Jesus? We ready to go do that? Yeah, yeah. Have a great week, church. The Lord bless you.